Welcome back to the Hemingway list for book 7, chapter 5 of War and Peace. Nikolai opens the chapter fervently praying that he is given a chance to bag a wolf himself. Why do you think hunting a wolf is so important to him? What would this victory mean? The old wolf is captured alive by Danilio or Daniel and trussed up and paraded about. Why do you think the wolf was kept alive? I kind of, um, I kind of, uh, uh, I kind of, um, felt, I was, I was feeling it. I was feeling it when Nikolai was saying that thing about wanting to catch the wolf. Not because I want to catch a wolf. I don't. But when he was, I can't remember what the phrasing was, but he was basically saying like, he just wants something to go his way, you know? And when he looked across and saw the thing that he was hoping to see, for a minute, he almost didn't believe it, you know, because he just felt like the things that he wants, just he has to fight so hard for, or the things that he wants, he has to, they just don't come about. He just has no luck. He's an unlucky person. I don't really think he is that unlucky, but I think he feels unlucky. Um, and I, like, I've, I've felt that way before, you know, when when something that you actually want to happen happens you like almost don't believe your eyes holy crap oh my god all right that's a long chapter i'm just scrolling through to see today's chapter having a little peek ahead and it is long ah oh, it's long i knew these chapters were long too i knew the wolf hunting scene was long ryan dundev says this this was really off-putting to me to be honest this book goes really well into the character development and all the villains and heroes are deeply humanized throughout but this made me straight up dislike everybody involved i'm sure there's a wealth of symbolism and development hidden in here but that's all overshadowed for me by people simply chasing a terrified animal for their own amusement not for food just for the glory of it grim i think um I don't think it is just for their own amusement, although I think the hunt is highly amusing for them and glorious. Uh, but I think it's a matter of, like, that wolf family was on their land, you know. So it's a it's more of a matter of we've got to get this one predator off of our land so that whatever other animals are living there can live there. And so because it is a sort of apex predator, this particular animal, there is this thrill of, you know, we're going up against a deadly creature here. Uh, but I do, I do hear you, like it was quite horrific and I feel like they're all getting swept up in the excitement of it and there's not much, um, not much of a humanitarian bent going on they're just more like warriors different time i guess you know different time there was a different sentiment towards things like hunting i mean even today we all there's still a lot of hunting that goes on i'm not a hunter but it's still you know for the most part an acceptable practice but even back then you know there, there was no uh, you know peter or whatever Twisted Every Way says, Oh, the description of that was so gross. Sounded like animal torture, keeping the wolf alive, tied up, and people and dogs poking it while it shrank in fear. Oh, yeah, gross. Why are they even hunting wolves and their cubs? 
They aren't eaten, right? I know it was sport of the time, but I don't enjoy reading it for sure. Good question, why are they? I mean, I've said already why I think they were, but I, I don't actually know. I'm just kind of assuming. Um, it might also be because there's a thing with hunters where it's like you kind of, they're, um, you know, a rare creature is more of a prize in hunting and a more dangerous creature is more of a prize in hunting and a wolf would be quite rare and quite dangerous. So, you know, if you can take down the apex predator of the area, there's a sort of glory in that. Yeah. So is it a glory thing or is it something else? I don't know. I don't know. Warren Kovafi says, I think perhaps Rostov is just seeking glory of some kind. Since he's not with the army at the moment, then maybe he can achieve some here by being the guy who bagged the nice wolf. I think Nikolai is into bolstering his image and maybe more so since his gambling loss to Dolokhov. I don't really know anything about hunting, so too sh not too sure as to why they're keeping the wolf alive at the moment. I, I do not know. Rye Bread Egg says, I just wanted to say I rooted for the wolf the whole time. Ha ha ha. Poor old wolf. Certainly didn't deserve that. Uh, I can see why Rostov got swept up in the glory seeking here. I mean, it'd be, it's, I mean, it's a sport. You know, and they were looking at it like a sport. There's 130 dogs and a couple of dozen people all out there trying to do one thing get this wolf and he wanted to be the one who did it and you can you can imagine that as a young man wanting amongst peers amongst a whole small army of dogs and men you want to be the one to achieve the one thing you're all trying to do I can see you know, I can see myself getting swept up and carried away in a situation like that, for sure. <sighs> but on this end of it, I do feel bad for that poor little wolf. Let's keep reading. Chapter 6. I'm going to read it quite quickly because it is long, and I didn't realize it's that long, and it's midnight. <clears throat> the old count went home, and Natasha and Petya promised to return very soon, but as it was still early, the hunt went farther. At midday they put the hounds into the ravine thickly overgrown with young trees. Nicholas, standing in a fallow field, could see all his whips. Facing him lay a field of winter rye. There his own huntsman stood alone in a hollow hill behind a hazel bush. The hounds had scarcely been loosed before Nicholas heard one he knew, Voltorn, giving tongue at intervals. Other hounds joined in, now pausing and now again giving tongue. A moment later he heard a cry from the wooded ravine that a fox had been found, and the whole pack joined together, rushed along the ravine towards the rye field and away from Nicholas. He saw the whips and the red caps galloping along the edge of the ravine. He saw the hounds and, the expecting, and was expecting a fox to show itself at any moment of the rye field opposite the huntsman, standing in the hollow, moved and loosed his buzzwise, and Nicholas saw a queer, short-legged red fox with a fine brush going hard across the field. The buzzwise bore down on it. Now they drew close to the fox, which began to dodge between the field in sharper and sharper curves, trailing its bush, trailing its brush. When suddenly, a strange white buzzwise dashed in, followed by a black one, and everything was in confusion. The always formed a, a star-shaped figure, scarcely swaying their bodies, and with tails turned away from the centre of the group. Two huntsmen galloped up to the dogs, one in a red cap, the other a stranger in a green coat. 
What's this, Nicholas? Sorry, what's this, thought Nicholas? Where's that huntsman from? He's not uncle's man. The huntsman got the fox, but stayed there a long time without strapping it to the saddle. Their horses, bridled and with high saddles, stood near them, and there, too, the dogs were lying. The huntsmen waved their arms and did something to the fox. Then from that spot came the sound of a horn, with the signal agreed on in this case of a fight. That's Illigan's huntsman having a row with our Ivan, said Nicholas's groom. Nicholas sent the man to call Natasha and Petya to him and rode at a footpace to the place where the whips were bedding, were getting the hounds together. Several of the field galloped to the spot where the fight was going on. Nicholas dismounted and with Natasha and Petya, who had ridden up, stopped near the hounds, waiting to see how the matter would end. Out of the bushes came the huntsman who had been fighting and rode towards his young master with the fox tied to his cropper. While still at a distance, he took off his cap and tried to speak respectfully, but he was pale and breathless, and his face was angry. On his eyes was black. Sorry, one of his eyes was black, but he probably was not even aware of it. What's happened? asked Nicholas. A likely thing, killing a fox our dogs had hunted, and it was my grey bitch that caught it. Go to law indeed. He snatches at the fox. I gave him one with the fox. Here it is on my saddle. Do you want a taste of this? said the huntsman, pointing to his dagger, and probably imagining himself still speaking to his foe. Nicholas, not stopping to talk to the man, asked his sister and Petra to wait for him, and rode to the spot where the enemy's Illigan's hunting party was. The victorious huntsman rode off to join the field, and there, surrounded by inquiring sympathisers, recounted his exploits. The facts were that Illigan, with whom the Rostovs had a quarrel and were at law, hunted over places that belonged by custom to the Rostovs, and had now, as if purposely, sent his men to the very woods the Rostovs were hunting, and let his man snatch a fox their dogs had chased. Nicholas, though he had never seen Illigan, with his usual absence of moderation in judgment, hated him cordially from reports of his arbitrariness and violence and regarded him as his bitterest foe. He regarded in ang- sorry, he rode in angry agitation towards him, firmly grasping his whip, and fully prepared to take the most resolute and desperate steps to punish his enemy. Hardly had he passed an angle of the wood before the stout gentleman in a beaver cap came riding towards him on a handsome raven black horse, accompanied by two hunt servants. Instead of an enemy, Nicholas found in Illigan a stately and courteous gentleman who was particularly anxious to make the Count's acquaintance. Having ridden up to Nicholas, Illigan raised his beaver cap and said he much regretted what had occurred and would have the man punished who had himself allowed to who had allowed himself to seize a fox hunted by someone else's borzois. He hoped to become better acquainted with the Count and invited him to draw his covert. Natasha, afraid that her brother would do something dreadful, had followed him in some excitement. Seeing the enemies exchanging friendly greetings, she rode up to them. Illigan lifted his beaver cap still higher to Natasha and said with a pleasant smile that the young countess resembled Diana in her passion for the chase as well as in her beauty, of which he had heard much. To expiate the huntsman's offence, Illigan pressed the Rostovs to come to an upland of his about a mile away, which he usually kept for himself, and which, he said, swarmed with hares. Nicholas agreed, and the hunt now doubled 
moved on. The way to Illigan's upland was across the fields. The hunt servants fell into line. The masters rode together. Uncle Rostov and Illigan kept stealthily glancing at one another's dogs, trying not to be observed by their companions and searching uneasily for rivals to their own borzois. Rostov was particularly struck by the beauty of a small, purebred, red-spotted bitch on Illigan's leash, slender but with muscles like steel, a delicate muzzle, a prominent black, and prominent black eyes. He had heard of the swiftness of Illigan's borzois, and in that beautiful bitch saw a rival to his own milker. In the middle of a sober conversation begun by Illigan about the year's harvest, Nicholas pointed to the red-spotted bitch. A fine little bitch, that said he in a careless tone. Is she swift? That one? Yes, she's a good dog. Gets what she's after, answered Illigan indifferently, of, of the red-spotted bitch Urza, for which a year before he had given a neighbour three families of house serfs. So, in your parts too, the harvest is nothing to boast of, Count, he went on, continuing the conversation they had begun, and considering it polite to return the young Count's compliment. Illigan looked at his borzois and picked out Milka, who attracted his attention by her breadth. That black spotted one of yours is fine, well shaped, said he. Yes, she's fast enough, replied Nicholas, and thought. If only a full-grown hare would cross the field now, I could show you what sort of borzoi she is. And turning to his groom, he said he would give a rouble to anyone who found a hare. I don't understand, continued Illigan how some sportsmen can be so jealous about game and dogs. For myself, I can tell you, Count, I enjoy riding in company such as this. What could be better? He again raised his cap to Natasha. But as for counting skins and what one takes, I don't care about that. Of course not. Or being upset because someone else's borzoi and not mine catches something. All I care about is to enjoy seeing the chase. Is it not so, Count? For I consider that a two came the long-drawn cry of one of the Borzo whippers in, who had halted. He stood on a knoll in the stubble, holding his whip aloft, and again repeated his long-drawn cry, Atu. This call and the uplifted whip meant that he saw a sitting hare. Ah, he has found one, I think, said Illigan carelessly. Yes, we must ride up. Shall we both course it? answered Nicholas, seeing in Urza and Uncle's red rugae two rivals, he had never yet had a chance of pitting against his own borzois. And suppose they outdo my milker at once, he thought as he rode with Uncle and Illigan toward the hare. A full-grown one, asked Illigan as he approached the whip who had sighted the hare, and not without agitation he looked round and whistled to Urza. And you, Michael Nikonovich, he said, addressing Uncle. The latter was riding with a sullen expression on his face. How can I join in? Why, you've given a village for each of your borzois. That's it, come on. Yours are worth thousands. Try yours against one another. You too, and I'll look on. Ruge, hey, hey, he shouted. Rugeuska, he added involuntarily by this diminutive expression, his affection and the hopes he placed on his red borzoi. Natasha saw and felt the agitation the two elderly men and her brother were trying to conceal and was herself excited by it. The huntsman stood halfway up the knoll, holding up his, woof, his whip, and the gentlefolk rode up to him at a footpace. The hounds that were far off on the horizon turned away from the hare, and the whips, but not the gentlefolk, also moved away. All was moving slowly and sedately. 
"'How is it pointing?' asked Nicholas, riding a hundred paces toward the whip, who had sighted the hare. But before the whip could reply, the hare, scenting the frost coming next morning, was unable to rest and leaped up. The pack on leash rushed downhill in full cry after the hare, and from all sides the borzois that were not on leash darted after the hounds and the hare. All the hunt, who had been moving slowly, shouted, "'Stop!' calling in the hounds while the borzoi whips with a cry of a two galloped across the field setting the borzois on the hare the tranquil illigan nicholas natasha and uncle flew reckless of where and how they went seeing only the borzoi and the hare and fearing only to lose sight even for an instant of the chase the hare they had started was a strong and swift one when he jumped up he did not run at once, but pricked his ears, listening to the shouting and trampling that resounded from all sides at once. He took a dozen bounds, not very quickly, letting the boys always gain on him, and finally, having chosen his direction and realised his danger, laid back his ears and rushed off headlong. He had been lying in the stubble, but in front of him was the autumn sowing, where the ground was soft, and the boys always of the huntsman who had sighted him, having been the nearest, were the first to see and pursue him. But they had not gone far before Illigan's red-spotted Urza passed them, got within a length, flew at the hare with terrible swiftness, aiming at his scut, and thinking she had seized him, rolled over like a ball. The hare arched his back and bounded off yet more swiftly. From behind Ezra rushed the broad-haunched black-spotted milker and began rapidly gaining on the hare. Milashka, dear, rose Nicholas's triumphant cry. It looked as if Milka would immediately pounce on the hare, but she overtook him and flew past. The hare had squatted. Again, the beautiful Urza reached him, but when close to the hare's, Scut paused as if measuring the distance so as not to make a mistake this time, but seize his hind leg. Urza, darling, Illigan wailed in a voice unlike his own. Urza did not hearken to his appeal. At the very moment when she would have seized her prey, the hare moved and darted along the bulk between the winter rye and the stubble. Again, Urza and Milka were abreast, running like a pair of carriage horses, and began to overtake the hare, but it was easier for the hare to run on the bulk, and the borzois did not overtake him so quickly. Rugay, Rugushka, that's it, come on, came a third voice just then, and Uncle's red borzoi, straining and curving its back, caught up with the two foremost borzois, pushed ahead of them regardless of the terrible strain, put on speed close to the hare, knocked it off the balk onto the rye field, again put on speed till more viciously sinking to his knees in the muddy field, and all one could see was how muddying his back he rolled over with the hare, a ring of borzois surrounded him, a moment later everyone had drawn up around the crowd of dogs, only the delighted uncles dismounted and cut off a pad, shaking the hair for the blood to drip off, and anxiously glancing round with restless eyes while his arms and legs twitched. He spoke without himself knowing whom, to, or what about. That's it, come on, that's a dog. There, it has beaten them all. The thousand rouble was well as the one rouble borzoi. That's it, come on said he, panting and looking wrathfully around as if he were abusing someone, as if they were all his enemies, and had insulted him, and only now had he at last succeeded in justifying himself. There are your thousand rouble ones. That's it. Come on. Rugay, here's a pad for you, he said, throwing down the hare's muddy pad. You've deserved it. That's it. Come on. She tired herself out. She'd run it down three times by herself, said Nicholas, also not listening to anyone and regardless of whether he was heard or not.
But what is there in running across it like that? said Illigan's groom. Once she had missed it and turned away, any mongrel would take it, Illigan was saying, at the same time, breathless from his gallop and his excitement. At the same time, mo- at the same moment, Natasha, without drawing breath, screamed joyously, ecstatically, and so piercingly that it set everyone's ears tingling. By that shriek she expressed what the others expressed by all talking at once, and it was so strange that she must herself have been ashamed of so wild a cry, and everyone else would have been amazed at it at any other time. Uncle himself twisted up the hair, threw it neatly and smartly across his horse's back, as if by that gesture he meant to rebuke everybody, and, with an air of not wishing to speak to anyone, mounted his bay and rode off. The others all followed, dispirited and shamefaced, and only much later were they able to regain their former affectation of indifference. For a long time they continued to look at Red Rogay, who, his arched back spattered with mud and clanking the ring of his leash, walked along just behind Uncle's horse, with the serene air of a conqueror. Well, I am like any other dog, as long as it's not a question of coursing, but when it is, then look out, his appearance seemed to Nicholas to be saying. When much later Uncle rode up to Nicholas and began talking to him, he felt flattered that after what had happened, Uncle deigned to speak to him. All right, there we go, there's a chapter for you. Sorry for the static in the middle of that. There was a kettle boiling in the background. Um, I hope that wasn't too staticky. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.